Hey guys, uh, thanks for tuning in. We have a real special guest today. It is a, another cannabis lawyer, uh, Rod Kite, right? Rod Kite, yes. Uh, you, most people say night. Um, and so you when I, right off when, the I, when I saw your name first, uh, my brain immediately put it as night. And yeah. then I reviewed it again. And I said, wait, there's no end there. That's the sign of a good lawyer. You found it right away. You, you're, you're, you're checking it out. So most people just blow right through that. I, so I did. I did first say it's clearly night and I was wrong, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So how long have you been practicing in the cannabis space? Uh, probably going on about, let's see, four, four and a half years now. Wow. Um, now you're, I'm in uh, Illinois and four, four and a half years, there was just no practice volume back then simply because the medical state regulations that we have in Illinois are very, very tight. And I, uh, I was at a different firm uh, when that one came around. How did you get into it? Because you're in North Carolina, right? North Carolina. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a little, the little nutshell version is that I have, um, I've kind of practiced in all different areas. I left the uh, firm I was with about a, the, the first and only firm I've, I've worked with as a lawyer um, about a, not even a year into it. I thought, Hey, I'll, I'll just go do my own thing. Well, when you open your own law practice, um, particularly as a young lawyer, you have to just kind of do everything that comes to you. So I've kind of been, did a lot of stuff, but kind of migrated towards bankruptcy, became a bankruptcy specialist, did a lot of, um, commercial restructuring, a lot of individual restructuring. Oh, I, I, now that you mentioned that, um, you wouldn't happen to have a 523 complaint that I could look after. Uh, you know, I got to right. file a, I got to file one. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. You do some yourself. So, and I think yeah, yeah. As, a, as a little aside, I think we're going to start seeing bankruptcy practice as a pretty big piece of the, of the whole cannabis practice. Maybe. Wait a minute. We could, well, like, I didn't think it was going to take us this long before we start geeking out as to aspects of federal bankruptcy law. When it comes to cannabis, I've read cases on this that says that that is actually using the United States government trustees is a money launderer. Yep, that's right. So we can't do it with, um, and to be specific, with, with marijuana yet, because marijuana is, you know, federally illegal. But when it comes Correct. to, you know, the hemp explosion is happening in CBD and, and, and what happens with these cycles is you usually have the boom and the bust and the correction and all that. So I think it's not going to be too long. I'm predicting 18 to 24 months before we see the first big rush of, of hemp and CBD uh, bankruptcies, and then there'll be a lot of them, and then we'll kind of they'll be, it'll be just be like any other industry. Right. So, uh, Speaking of that, was something that we discussed. Well, I discussed uh, on the channel last week, where I was giving a presentation to the Illinois Hemp Association, and they are talking about commodity futures in hemp. So oh, yeah. there might even be standardization of prices, which would because if the prices right now are in the stratosphere because there's just no uh, regulation and no competition. As soon as you get price control that comes from a lot of supply plus standard future contracts. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that, that's that's happening as we speak. I mean, for sure, um, you know, hemp and CBD are becoming uh, a commodity. And, you know, I, I've been sort of my little, uh, you know, whatever my little pedestal I'm standing on and, and telling the, the world is that like, you know, is the hemp industry um, and CBD, we've been looking sort of navel gazing here, looking at this little world and trying to solve all these problems that are hitting us. Well, you look up and you take away the sort of, you know, controlled substances piece, which is now technically taken away with the far, um, farm bill, but you take that away. And, and these are just like any other commodities in most respects, whether they be soybeans or corn or sugar or whatnot. And there's all of these, not all of them, but a lot of the problems and issues that we're facing 
have been solved before, you know, and, and so right. and like the uniform commercial code is there. We understand how bankers use uh, collateral and how they pay for loans. Right. It's, it's just the same kind of stuff. And so it won't be too long before that's it's just a standard commodity. And, and, and granted, we have we're going to have more regulation than, say, soybeans, because you don't test soybeans for you know, THC concentrations and things like that, of course. But beyond that, it's just going to be, you know, to a large degree like other commodities. Do you think that they're ever going to budge on that 0.3% THC, which was just plucked out of the air by some guy in the 70s? Um, You know, my thought is probably no. Uh, But it doesn't mean that we're not going to have federally legal cannabis, marijuana, you know, and and that type of thing. But but what I've seen and what you've probably seen in your practice is a lot of times when there is some sort of standard that's put in there and it and it goes into one statute and then it gets into another statute and then state stat, statutes kind of track it, it becomes very, very difficult to undo that. You just kind of get baked into yeah. it. So to speak. For example, the metric system has been around for a bit, but we're still not using it. <laughs> that's a good point. Exactly. Although, you know, it's so interesting in the hemp um, uh, industry, uh, there's a lot of um, talks in terms of ki- kilograms and things like that. So there's a little bit of, of metric system stuff that pops into the hemp and CBD world. I'm kind of happy. Oh, that's interesting. Now, these inputs that they're using, because when they're growing CBD hemp, it's a lot more like doing a THC flower, for right. lack of a better term. And so uh, when you're seeing these operations, a lot of them are in, contained in their, uh, their grows inside. And so a lot of the parts and, and the measurements, because science, even in America, still uses the metric system. So maybe right. that's why. Yes, I think that's probably why. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have the sort of pounds to kilograms converter. And when you're looking at contracts, you kind of have to make sure that, you know, you're not using both. You kind of pick one and go with it. So, yeah. Well, that's cool. All right. What types of things have you been helping your clients with in the industry for the past couple of years? That's that's a great question. So um, most of what I do is hemp and CBD. You had talked about how I, I got involved and being in North Carolina. North Carolina has is a very non-progressive state when it comes to cannabis reform, at least on the marijuana side. For hemp, it's actually been very progressive and very good. And so North Carolina came out of the box pretty strong with hemp and CBD around the same time that I started getting involved in cannabis law. And so I was very fortunate um, there. And so that is all to say that most of what I've done is to represent businesses in the hemp and CBD space. And that's, you know, we've got a lot of clients in North Carolina, but, but far flowing throughout the United States and even in some foreign countries. What I help clients with, I'd say first and foremost, a compliance, you know, just helping them. They call up and say, I want to make sure I'm doing the right thing. Um, and, and can we vet this? And so the compliance can run the gamut from legal opinion letters to vetting uh, websites or marketing language uh, to strategizing, you know, going, you know, in you know, forward thinking how we're going to uh, put this together. Almost like so you're really drawing more on your because it's I'm not just an attorney. I'm also a counselor, that type of aspect yes. where you're, you're really counseling as opposed to doing more legal procedures. Oh, yeah, yeah. We do a ton of counseling. I I spend a lot of time on the phone and in Skype meetings and meetings and stuff with clients just guiding them. Yeah, and I love the counseling aspect. I think it's great. You know, um, this industry is drawing in a lot of really smart people from all sorts of different fields. And so to to be able to sit down and have a brainstorming guided strategy strategy session is, is very stimulating and enjoyable. We do a lot of that. Uh, then we do you know trademarks and IP work. 
a lot of contract drafting and vetting and, you know, um, entity formation and structuring entities, just the kind of standard business law stuff, whether or not we're. That's exactly right. I mean, it really does sound like a standard business law practice, which is what my practice is. I mean, I typically would represent banks in the past, but now I'm branching out and I'm representing a lot more businesses when it comes to these types of things. And it's, it's great. And then you're, you can actually match your politics I mean, I, I'm a business guy. I like business. But then I also believe that, that this law is 80 years old and it's completely, oh, uh, stick around to the end of this one. And I will uh, let's let's get it into riddle time here. Uh, what U.S. Supreme Court chief justice is responsible for lying to Congress and helping the, uh, the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act of 1937 become law? That is a great question. I don't know the answer to that. Are you going to provide it now? Are you going to I, keep I, I was going to it's, it's one of those hooks that you do in, um, in YouTube to give people a reason to stick around. It's kind of like in soap operas. You know, they zoom in on somebody and be like, oh, my God. And then, then you have to stick around. But, yeah, that was the book that I did, like, in 2010 was I it was I'd only been practicing for about a year and a half. And so I, I saw this and I was a history major in college. And I'm like, this is one of the most fascinating uh, aspects of history, which has mostly been swept under the rug because you made something literally illegal. And therefore, you've put this opprobrium of a criminal brand on top of it. So people really don't want to look into it because, as Jeff Sessions says, good people don't smoke marijuana. And so looking into it, you just saw like, how fascinating and how many lies that were in there. And so I, I drafted a book on it. And I did okay. I had a small printing, but uh, then I got a job at a bank law firm, and I I kind of quit promoting it. You know, I I like if I sold one of these, I'd make five bucks. You know, if I sat down and drafted a legal brief, I'd make hundreds. You know, right, right. The the the, the economies that there. Well, I'd love to read your book. Absolutely, you know that. Uh, sure, I'll mail it to you. It's it's a historical fiction, but it's kind of like you know what was that? The Devil in the White Suit. That was a historical fiction right. again uh, around like 1893 in the World's Fair. There, so it's while it is a fiction, you 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 look at all the history and uh, the best that you can put it together. And then uh, I would explore, and I think that the argument is, is still a fairly strong one. It, it has to get back to the scheduling of THC as a controlled substance. And it, I think that it would fail, if anything, would fail the rational basis with bite test. Uh, this one would. I realize it's an economic regulation. They're like, therefore, they can say whatever the X they want. But I'm like, no, no, no. That, that really means that you are turning a blind eye to, I mean, a legal blind eye to the, the substance itself and just allowing Congress to regulate the, the uh, commerce in it by saying anything. There, it's just unhinged from actual facts. Completely unhinged from actual facts. And, you know, when, when Nixon wanted to, you know, to have marijuana, you know, cannabis uh, made illegal, he the, the Controlled Substances Act is not something that just sort of captured marijuana and maybe it shouldn't have the controlled substance act by and large was created in order to make marijuana illegal or make wait i thought it was supposed to regulate all pharmaceutical drugs in those five schedules was it solely to make marijuana illegal and if so why do you think that well i, I mean i think i i think it arguably was because it didn't exist and nixon specifically wanted cannabis to be illegal and he in fact had a you know he had a, a committee that was supposed to review it and come back to him with favorable finding, you know, favorable to him, uh, these findings that, that in fact, yes, cannabis was, was addictive and, and toxic and caused all these bad things. And then his own hand-picked person that he chose to, to, to run the committee and prepare the report told him, nah, it shouldn't be scheduled. 
which enraged right, you. Right, right. Now, this is, there's some interesting stuff in here. Let me, this raises another question. So why did, uh, I thought marijuana was already illegal. Why did Nixon want it illegal? Well, you, uh, you know this. So um, uh, it was, the Supreme Court struck down the 1937 marijuana tax act. Uh, was there, a, was there a, a, a Mr. Leary involved in this there case? Was. At all? Dr. Leary yeah. was involved. Yeah. So yeah, pranksters. Right. He, um, he, he, um, he challenged it and prevailed. So there was a short period of time where where marijuana was was lawful, and, and Nixon. Oh, federally lawful, but in every single state, it was legal. Correct. Correct. Federally lawful. Yeah, that's a good point. So, um, so yeah, you know, it seems like every time there's been some sort of, of um, legitimate study, you know, whether it's scientific, political, otherwise, it comes back that the cannabis should not be classified and it shouldn't be scheduled at all. And yet the political forces that be continue to keep it on the schedules. Um, and even now, it seems kind of strange because if you do look at polling pretty much across the board, whether it's a state by state or a national poll, when it comes to medical marijuana, it's like super majorities approve it. It's not just a majority. Yeah. And even when super majority, to, yes. yeah, to adult use, you know, so-called recreational use, I believe, and I haven't looked in the most recent polls, but um, the last time I looked at this six or eight months ago, um, a solid majority, you know, favored it. And, but yet it's still not legal. It's still schedule one. You know, Congress has some bills that float around. It's the one thing that seems to unite Democrats and Republicans, but yet no reform actually happens or limited reform. Uh, so it's 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 pretty frustrating to say the least. To say the least. And the thing that I was really frustrated about back in 1970 when they were conspiring to make this law illegal, they put into the Controlled Substances Act Part F. And Part F was this Schaefer Commission that I think you were just alluding, alluding to. And so essentially what they did, and one of the reasons why I also think it fails the rational basis test, especially once you put in the, uh, the, the racial factors in the rational basis with the bite test of constitutionality, what they did in Congress's sense is they said, okay, we don't know where this is. You know, basically admitting there are no congressional findings of fact. So we are going to put it in Schedule 1 and we're going to pass that law. But after we pass that law, then we're going to study it to make sure we're right. You know, it's kind of like if you were a, a batter at a, at a baseball game and you just stood in the box and the umpire calls a strike and you're like, wait a second, he didn't even throw the pitch yet. And it's like, oh, no, no, I know what's going to happen. We're going to we're now let him throw the pitch and then I'm going to say if I was right or wrong, which that makes yeah, no sense. It, it makes no sense whatsoever. Again, it was just a, as a bootstrapping way. And, and of course, reason or the primary reason that cannabis is is unlawful is to control people and populations you know the 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 progressive movement that was very much um pushing back against um nixon and 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 politics at that time the the conservative politics were in favor of of cannabis use and were using cannabis and it was seen as a way that was to to control um that population and it's continued to be that way and you know it's controlled um, and in a very unfair um, racial minorities. And, and um, it's just been a, a beaten stick, you know, in a way that it just shouldn't be. Um, and mm-hmm. I think that's why it remains controlled. You know, right now we have a lot of economic interests involved. You know, the, the private prison system is very much opposed to uh, cannabis reform because the same with like sheriff's associations and police oh, unions. Right. Yeah, you know, there, there's not nearly as many prisoners or, you know, or people to arrest when, when you decriminalize um, uh, marijuana. Uh, the, of course, we've, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry is, 
uh, as opposed to it, at least until it can get a good foothold, I think, with the cannabinoid-based um, medications. But, you know, you hear study after study saying that when a state uh, legalizes, um, you know, cannabis use, that pharmaceutical, um, de- you know, dependency rates and use go down. And, well, yeah, but that's only according to the Journal of the American Medical Association. Is that JAMA publication just exactly, like a safety right, right. publication? Fake news, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Um, and I thought that was one of the things of Cory Booker's uh, bill that he sponsored most recently, just a couple of weeks ago, the Marijuana Justice Reform Act. What is, what's your opinion of auto expungement? I think, you know, it's funny as a lawyer, you know, when we're looking at things very in very technical uh, way, you think, well, if something was a crime at the time that it was committed, um, then, you know, is expungement the right thing? And I actually struggled with this a few years ago. I thought, well, you know, at the time it was done, people knew it was illegal. They did it anyway. But you take that back. You say, well, well, cannabis never should have been scheduled. Um, it's been used and it's, it, and it's draconian with respect to, um, you know, racial minorities and how it's been used to incarcerate them. Uh, it, it absolutely, to me, makes all the sense in the world that, that this auto expungement should um, should happen. And, and, you know, one of the things that I would like to do with my practice is if Booker's bill goes through or any other bill that allows for expungement is, you know, people who have been imprisoned or or maybe or have been sort of pushed aside in society because of their um, prison time and uh, based on marijuana charges and convictions is they might not have the means or the resources to go through that expungement process. And so I, you know, I can envision a pro bono group, a nationwide pro bono group that helps people to just follow through with the basic details that need to happen and procedures to, to, to be, um, to get the expungement. And what I would love to see is paired up with that is a, um, you know, a register to vote push as well. Because, you know, once you're, you're nice. born, yeah, that's, well, that's you're allowed to vote. Yeah. yeah. Did you see what happened in Florida most recently? It's, it's a recent election because like Florida finally did get medical marijuana, but they required 70% of the people to do it because they have that super majority of uh, changing the ballot initiatives in Florida. However, most recent ballot initiative uh, was the one that's going to allow felons to get their right to vote back, and that might swing an extra million votes. Right. I mean, it's it's big numbers. I mean, you think all, all yeah, the people- but I can just hear the Republicans right now. Their assholes are immediately seizing up. I mean, they are just terrified of this prospect because if there's nobody who's bad, how can we be against them? Right. Exactly. No, I, I think, but it's it's a key thing that needs to happen. It's unfair. Um, and, it, and it just it puts the voting rights back to and you know people that should have never had them taken away, and and people who have views um, that I think are tend to be more progressive. You know we don't know you know that's I'm you know we, we talk about you know a whole entire population of people they're going to have views across the political spectrum. But I think by and large someone who's been incarcerated and unable to vote because of a marijuana conviction is probably going to vote you know more progressively than the you know your your standard you know conservative. Yeah, I can see that. I can see that. I mean, I really can. But uh, it's it's an interesting issue. And then with uh, the Marijuana Justice Reform Act, or I think it's just the Marijuana Justice Act, because and I'm not sure. Part of me always thinks that there's there's, um, you know, lazy writing and what do they call those things? Puns and whatnot involved in naming any bill about marijuana, whether it's H.R. 420 or the MJ Act now with the Marijuana Justice Act or any headline about marijuana whatsoever. And a publication is going to also have a bad pun about it. Yes. But uh, in Cory Booker's bill, he does provide a community reinvestment fund to help pay for 
these types of things that you mentioned where you know they need pro bono service for getting their uh, auto expungement because uh, just regulatory nightmare that it would be of trying to track every inmate that's out there that has some type of contributing factor related to cannabis because you know how they they can they can convict these people with because it's not just one crime it's not just oh Right. You know, clearly one crime, it's, it's a stack of them. And then how many of those were for uh, schedule one substance? And then you'd have to drill in and see which schedule one substance. Yeah, you know. I see. I, I think I, I don't know how the bill works on that on that level. But you know, it seems to me there, there would be a, a, some sort of a media campaign and probably anyone who's sitting in prison or who can't vote or whatever has a felony. Um, they'd probably and, and know that if there's a marijuana component to that. Uh, would be coming right back out and calling. They just need to know what numbers to call or who to contact or, or that kind of thing. So, Yeah, and it could take years, though, to just judge it from the uh, mesothelioma advertisements for the asbestos trust fund that I still see to this day. Right. Absolutely. But it needs to happen, you know, regardless of the size or the, you know, the logistics. It's something that I think is, is just fundamental fairness. It just has to happen. Do you think that when one of these bills passes, because I think that there is going to be a time where cannabis is descheduled. I think that's the most effective one. You don't even want it rescheduled because you want all the other crimes that are that are tied to the Controlled Substances Act to be gone. But do you think there's going to be in its place any type of regulation or they just draw a line through cannabis? You know, that's a great. My guess is if it goes federally legal, uh, then they will allow the states to regulate it and it will be on on par to some degree with alcohol, tobacco, those types of things. So I think we'll definitely see regulations, but I think they will emerge from the states versus the feds. Just with your familiarity, the farm bill, is that kind of similar to what the farm bill has done? They got, they let the feds get out of the way and there's no licensing, but at the state level, the states then have to tell the feds that what they're doing is correct. Can you explain that? Yeah, to the extent that there is any coherence at all right now, uh, we're mm-hmm. in a massive state of shifting um, grounds uh, legally. But, you know, with, with the Farm Bill, it, it, it will regulate hemp. Um, we don't have any regulations yet, uh, but the USDA will, will control and regulate that. The FDA still regulates and controls consumer products. So we do have some federal oversight there. But the states can opt out. They, they propose a plan. Uh, and if it's pl- approved, then they can regulate hemp and, and hemp products within their jurisdictions. They can't stop transportation. They can't just say it's unlawful, don't come through our state, but they can re- they can regulate it. Uh, what we're seeing now is a very weird situation in which we have state laws that purport to regulate hemp um, or, or, you know, or, uh, based on, you know, making marijuana illegal. Uh, and and but they haven't these laws haven't been approved by the USDA in terms of the plan that's contemplated by the farm bill. And so where does that leave us? We've got a state law. Let's just use a state for instance. This is like I, Iowa. Iowa does not have um, any sort of hemp reform. It doesn't have industrial hemp law under 2014 Act. There have been no state opt out plans under the 2018 Farm Act. And so you've got Iowa just it, it just defines this is is illegal. It's it's all marijuana. And so you go and you, you want to sell a hemp product there. Well, well, you've got a state law that says this is illegal marijuana. You've got a federal law that says, no, this is lawful hemp. And at a minimum, it can be transported through the state. Uh, where does that leave us? And so we're in this, this very 
interesting time and it fortunately will be over before too long and we'll have some yeah like uh my just practical solution would be well i'm not driving my hemp through iowa well no without a doubt you know well in this in this world that we're in right now with with all these changing um legal shifting sands there is a lot of just sort of practical stuff you know and and we've written uh, legal opinion letters literally taking the map of the united states we've got to get from point a to point point b well here's the most direct route but really it should be like this, you know, or something um, right. to, some states that it's probably best to avoid. Period. And I have clients who sell products uh, in states and, and they get, you know, they might have local law enforcement come in and say, oh, you can't sell those here. And sometimes we push back on that. Sometimes we say, you know what, it's, it's well, let's just pull out for six months and, and reenter because it's just not worth it for this kind of um, fight, depending on the, on the client and the product and where it is, of course. But these practical considerations are, are a big deal right now in the industry. Right. And they they will continue to be so. I mean, I, in the past few months, my practice has really started to, to amp up. And I can tell right now that there is a deluge of I'm already starting to get the calls and I'm already starting to send out the engagement letters just waiting for Illinois to essentially open its gates and say, we're now accepting applications. And right. once that happens, I'm probably going to, I'll be quite busy, but it's going to be great to see the, uh, the, the, the influx. Yeah. However, I, do you foresee any, uh, cause the, the stuff about CBD, first off, do you have any, uh, do you believe the stuff that you're hearing about CBD with uh, some of these medical claims that they're making? Well, actually, Explain if they're making medical claims. Yeah. It's, so let's uh, let's start. You know, does cannabidiol have um, medical utility? Um, absolutely. You know, w- without a doubt, I have read peer-reviewed journals. I have um, I've co-written one with a physician. I've talked to physicians. I've also had uh, just so many people reach out to me and tell me that it's helped their PTSD, their child's epilepsy, their their aches and pains, and so on and so forth. So yeah, I mean, I'm a true believer for sure in, in CBD and, and cannabinoid, you know, as a health aid for, for sure. And there's nothing wrong with saying that the, what would be, you know, unlawful or prohibited at the moment right now is for me to take CBD isolate, mix it into a product and sell that product and say, by the way, this can, you know, help you with your child's epilepsy. You know, that's, that's a prohibited act under the um, food, drug and cosmetic act. Now, can GW Pharmaceuticals do that with their uh, particular drug that is a CBDX? Well, it's CBD uh, just as a chemical itself, I believe, right? Right. Um, right. Well, Epidiolex is, is an approved drug. They went through the clinical trials and, and, and paid the money and got the, the tests and did the, the, the results, and, and, they, and it was an approved drug. And, and, and you know, more power to GW. It, it, it went through the requirements that it needed to go through. The problem is... Um, to the extent that that prohibits CBD from, from being generally available, that's what we want to avoid. And I believe that the FDA is going to carve out a path uh, to, to, to make CBD available uh, explicitly to the, to the public and consumer products and also as a pharmaceutical. And my best projection is, um, well, I've got two possible sort of projections one is that we're going to have, make a distinction between products containing CBD isolate, products that are enriched with the isolate, which will be pharmaceuticals not allowed, and, and so-called full or broad-spectrum extracts that contain CBD, which will be lawful. I think that's one possible set of paths, and I think that's where we're headed right now. But I have um, just sort of heard that it may be different. 
the FDA may allow CBD isolate in consumer products, uh, but there has to be some way to distinguish them from the, the pharmacological agents, you know, so it may be a, a purity and potency type of a thing, you know, at this purity and potency, it's pharmaceutical and that's it. At this purity and potency, it's a, it's a food or a dietary supplement, you know, and so we'll, how it plays out will remain to be seen, but I think it's going to be one of those two. And um, do we have like a, a time per period when we are expecting uh, the FDA to, to make some type of statement about CBD? Well, it needed to happen like six months ago, of course, you know, or yesterday or whenever. Yeah, but six months ago, CBD, especially no matter where it was extracted from, was a Schedule One substance. No, I completely disagree, 100%. Um, if Wait was, a second. I thought that the Controlled Substances Act did not make any type of distinction between uh, cannabis and hemp until the Farm Bill was signed by Donald Trump in December of 2018. No. In 2014, Congress passed the, um, the 2014 Farm Bill, which allowed for, the, um, for states to create pilot programs for, for industrial hemp. And so industrial hemp is a lawful, you know, not scheduled substance, and anything derived from it, uh, is also lawful because if you look, the Controlled Substances Act makes no mention anywhere of CBD at all. It just says all parts of the marijuana plant. Well, industrial hemp is not marijuana. Um, and so really CBD's legal status depends on the source from which it's derived. Marijuana, it's illegal. Hemp, it's lawful. So, um, uh, does, this, does the Controlled Substances Act make any mention of uh, hemp whatsoever? No, it does not. Then isn't hemp and cannabis? I'm sorry, isn't hemp and marijuana the same uh, family plant? No, but 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 we're talking we're, we're talking the law now, so we're not talking botany. There, it's all cannabis. That's but cannabis doesn't ha- is not a legal term of art, at least at the federal level. Hemp, marijuana is a legal term of art, and and hemp used to be industrial hemp. Now it's hemp are as a legal term of art. This is lawful and this is unlawful. And so, so it's marijuana of- that's unlawful, not right. hemp, not cannabis sativa. Well, we can't use the term cannabis sativa because that's a botanical term. I think when you talk, when we're talking legal, and that's why you know cannabis is the is the preferred term for the whole thing. It's just the same plant. But as a, as lawyers, I, I think it's it's incumbent on us to use terms of art. So I still use the term marijuana, even though that's an understandably disfavored term. When I go out west and visit people, people talk about cannabis this and cannabis that, and I still say marijuana. I look old fashioned, but the reason I do that is because when we start talking about cannabis it blurs all of this and makes it mushier than it even ever was. So I think I almost think that's intentional. And I almost think that that's a marketing strategy. And not only is that a marketing strategy, the term adult use as opposed to recreational, that's also a marketing strategy. You know, I'm not saying that the branding's wrong. I think it's a good idea to make that a wedge issue where you're saying the reason why it's a legal term of art is marijuana is because legally that, that law was fairly racist and that was intentional. Right. That was totally intentional. It was, that's why the term was created. But that's the term we're, we're stuck with until it's pulled from the books. You know? And that's what we have, the term we have to use in order to distinguish between lawful and unlawful forms of cannabis. You know? Right. Right. Well, that's, that's, uh, that was a really interesting uh, analysis of the uh, federal laws and how long it's been, how long these, these states have been able to create all this hemp. Um, now, I've seen... Uh, data from 2017 and 2018, and we're in 2019, so we don't know that one yet. But uh, in 2017, they said there was 25,000 acres of hemp grown. Right. 2018, they said there was 80,000 acres of hemp grown. Do we have any idea how many acres of hemp they're going to grow uh, this year? 
there's a term of a uh, technical term called a shit ton. And I think that's how much we're going to see. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. No, I, I don't know the projections at this stage of the game. I think, you know, there's, there's states that are still coming online. For example, um, Wyoming uh, just signed literally uh, within with the past week, it's a uh, program, uh, but we've, I've seen reports. I don't know if their plants are going to go in the ground this year or, or next year. And so there's states coming online. There's people that are still registering in states that, that, you know, that have been online. There's, you know, so I, I don't know, but it's going to be a lot. And we're seeing this sort of this, the, the demand is, is just here and supply is, is, is growing to meet it. And so I, I think it's going to be a lot. And even more yeah. here. I've had a lot of people call about Illinois and Illinois rules are kind of mashuga in the sense that here we are March 11th and uh, they're, they're racing the gun because if they don't have the plant in the ground by June one, yeah. Uh, they kind of missed the boat. And a lot of the farmers at the and guys that I've been talking to, some of them that, that especially that are trying to go after CBD flower. And I'm like, well, are you going to grow indoors? And they're going to say, why? Why would I grow indoors? I can grow this outdoors. I'm like, well, yeah, you can get five harvests uh, in, a, in a year as opposed to one. Uh, then it's climate controlled. You know, everything that you're putting in the plant, you know, you're just really taking out uh, more uncertainty from the equation. But uh, a lot of them think that they want to grow and they want to grow in the dirt. Yep. Yeah, I've talked to so many different farmers of, of various stripes and, and opinions. And I think that they're, you know, what you're saying makes a lot of sense to me. I'm, I'm not, I'm someone who could, I can't even keep a, a cactus alive, you know, but, um, mm-hmm. but I've been fortunate to talk to some really smart farmers and there's pros and cons to all of these things. And I think there's, there's also at least a perception that sort of a sun-grown plant has a certain certain something medicinal benefit or like it's better for you that's the thing they're saying hey we're not going to take anything grown outdoors unless it's organic and i'm like oh beautiful monsanto organic yeah and so right and so i think it's that you know you can on on an industrial scale you know you can plant you know hundreds if not thousands of acres that you just can't do on an indoor but by but for all the things that you said are exactly right you know you can when you put it you know in in an indoor environment you can control all the variables you know you, you can do multiple you know, every you know, you know, couple of months, you've got a new cycle here. So yeah, some of the some of the producers that are already indoor that I'm talking with, they're like, no, no, we'll just we'll have our month and like we'll run it in such a way that we're harvesting each month. I mean, we'll have individualized rooms, of course, for you know, they they go into the flowering room and then they work their way out of the flowering room and just very very you know Henry Ford esque mechanized industrial. And, you know, it seems like a, a wonderful way to do it where you have more of a factory and less of a farm. Right. Yeah. Um, I, I think that there's going to be a lot of movement in that direction, you know, for, for these control variable reasons. Um, but I don't think we're going to see the end of the outdoor farm by any stretch. You know, I think the, those, you know, we've always had outdoor farming and we I think we always will. It may be more boutique and or more and sort of big scale industrial Um probably a little bit of both, but we're going to see that. We're going to see greenhouse use. We're going to see indoor. We're going to see, um, you know, all, all sorts of things in between. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're going to see a real distinction between um, the agricultural row crop of industrial hemp and more of the horticultural uh, greenhouse crop of CBD hemp. Right. So what do you think is the most interesting aspect of uh, this coming year? In, in the world uh, at large of cannabis. You, you can use the marijuana term of art, you can use the <laughs> term of art, whatever one. 
cannabis. You know, I that's a great question. There's like 10 things that are just fascinating. To me, I would say the, the most interesting thing, ah, interesting, one of the big issues is going to be testing. Uh, there's a huge need for, for standardized methodology with respect to testing on, on every level of the testing that you're talking about, from whether it's testing marijuana or hemp and the methods that you use, how you do the clippings, when you send them in, the type of test that's used, um, you know, how many tests, you know, do you need um, from this, you know, is it okay to just do the one test pre-harvest and it should always be legal or illegal from that point forward? Or, or do you test it post-harvest and then post, you know, um, consumer product and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think testing is something that needs to be addressed, whether it will be in any meaningful way, we don't know. Uh, I think that's a good point. Uh, from the stuff that I've heard, you, especially with the testing, uh, the state of Illinois is, is being very, very uh, responsive or receptive and sensitive to when plants are being harvested and, and when they're going to be tested before they're being harvested, simply because with these CBD plants, you have to be careful with them and not try to overclock them and, and push that CBD percentage up to 15, 18, whatever. Because you have, uh, at the same time, there's a risk of, you know, ice skating off from one legal term of art being hemp and into another legal term of art being marijuana if you cross that 0.3% threshold of THC. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a hard number there. And um, as you said, you know, earlier in the conversation, you know, we talked about, is it, should it be changed? It should definitely be changed, but I don't have any reason to believe it's going to be. Um, but yeah, exactly. So if you test it at this stage in the cycle, it'll pass. You test this test, it won't because these ratio, the, the CBD and THC are a, are a loose ratio. So as one goes, mm -hmm. the other one tends to as well. Uh, but the other big issue is the type of testing that you use. You know, so uh, if you use gas chromatography, uh, it's going to create the molecule that it's actually measuring. It's it makes no sense to me at all. Whereas if you use um, high performance liquid chromatography, it doesn't. Um, transform it. It just measures the actual amounts of, of Delta 9 THC that are in the, in the plant. Uh, but what we're seeing is that there's a lot of movement towards using gas chromatography. It's as if we said, well, you know, for, for law enforcement purposes, let's, we've got two radar guns. Radar gun A will speed up the car it's measuring um, and radar gun B will not. Hey, let's use radar. I can hear every every police union right now ordering radar gun A. Yeah, and get radar gun A. Get radar gun A. Exactly, and they're all wanting to use gas chromatography as the testing methodology, but it doesn't make it the right one. And so that's a big oh. um, a big thing that I'm I'm trying to put out there is we need to be using HPLC for sure. HPLC. We need to get more standards. Go ahead. I I didn't know that HPLC. Uh, I mean, I've heard of gas chromatography, and I figured that was one of the ways they were using to measure the uh, chemical co composition. I didn't hear that gas chromatography can actually help create THC in the test, whereas using it in liquid terms uh, can't. And that, that to me is like, wait, so you're, you're telling me that uh, there is such a thing as alchemy out there. It just doesn't make any sense that you can actually create a... Uh, uh, create a molecule through this testing process but you know i am not i'm not uh, i'm not a chemist i'm not a botanist i i'm uh, a skeptic of course but that's about it <laughs> well being a skeptic is a good first step for in the science well you know just for briefly i can i can address it you know gas chromatography is a, is a it's a perfectly valid form of of measuring and 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 testing in certain you know realms of 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 
you know, human and plant existence. But, but the bottom line is what it does is it heats the sample to be very general in order to separate out the components so they can be measured. Well, what happens when you heat THCA is it decarboxylates into delta nine THC, which is the thing that, that is required to be measured to determine. Oh, now it makes sense. I see because your, your THCA and THC are both, in, are both present. Now, does the law make a distinction between THC and THCA? Um, yes. Delta 9, T, Delta 9 THC is, is the one factor that makes, um, you know, determines whether or not something is legal hemp or illegal marijuana. And I get this question every day. You know, is, is it total THC? Is it THCA? And it's not. The, the law makes no mention of THCA. The problem is, though, that when you heat it up through a gas chromatography test, it will convert to Delta 9 THC. And there right. is the issue. That's why you have to smoke pot, because if you don't heat it up and you just eat it raw, I mean, I remember that. Like it, most of the THC that's on those uh, the, those crystals that you see when you're looking at the, the, the cannabis flower, I was under the impression that the vast majority of those are THCA. And so like right. you just start eating it. It's not going to do anything because maybe only like 1% of the whole, let's say there's 20% uh, of the flower that's THC is in the active format because the other, you know, because it is denatured or something through some process, but most of it needs to be decarboxylated. And, and the easiest way to do that is to heat it. Right. Exactly. That, that's exactly um, what happens. And so, you know, there, there's some different arguments as to why gas chromatography should be used. I've heard different terms from different regulators. One say, well, we need to, to, to actually measure the total available THC. Um, of course, that, there's nothing about available THC that's mentioned in the statute. But what they're getting at is if someone chose to light it up, would they get high or not? Well, first of all, you know, even fairly high THC concentrate, THCA concentrations um, in the hemp sphere are not enough to give anyone appreciably high. Um, but the other issue is so much hemp is not being decarboxylated or heated. It's being extracted this and the CBD is being extracted from it and, or, or at least the hip extract in the full broad spectrum and being put into products. It's never heated. It's never goes through any sort of conversion. So uh, again, I think if Congress had, had wanted to, you know, make THC the, the, the distinguishing factor, it could have done that very easily. And it didn't, it said Delta nine THC. And so to use a test that converts del, you know, THCA to Delta nine is just, uh, it's just the wrong test. There's no getting around, around that fact. Well, that's interesting. And I don't think that the federal law is going to make a more stringent uh, distinction. If anything, I believe it's going to be the uh, more lackadaisical distinction. And yeah, hopefully they do. And I, I'm in your camp where I don't I think it's going to be similar to the farm bill if and when they do deschedule THC or, or, or marijuana, uh, because I just don't see a vacuum. Uh, being there where Congress can make regulations. It just doesn't, it doesn't pass my smell test. Yeah, I hear it. I hear mm -hmm. it. All right, man. Well, this has been a good 45 minute discussion. I do have a one o'clock. I'm in the central time zone uh, coming up that I have to get to, but thank you so much for sticking around. If you're enjoying this content, I hope you like and subscribe on us. And now I know what you've been asking. What, U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice is responsible for cannabis. Well, I'm sorry. Technical term was marijuana, and this was the old spelling. Hey, let me ask you something. Uh, have they changed the spelling uh, as a legal term of our art 
Is it marijuana with a J uh, or marijuana with an H under the control? Marijuana with an H still in federal law. It's very strange. Yeah. Yeah, well, it just gets back to, I think it does fail the rational basis of the bite test. I mean, that's why it's marijuana with an H. It even reflects our lack of understanding of how uh, Spanish is spelled. But the U.S. Supreme Court Chief Justice was Fred Vincent. He was a Kentucky congressman, a New Deal Democrat. And uh, in August of 1937, before air conditioners were you know, plentiful uh, and uh, Washington, D.C. is somewhat swampy, uh, he lied to Congress and told the Republicans in the chamber that the American Medical Association, which still somewhat caucused with the Republicans even back then, uh, supported the Marijuana Tax Stamp Act and it went on to pass. He then became uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice. And uh, another small other uh, hint of uh, you know, historical anecdotes from America to make you feel just, just really proud. Uh, do you know what uh, Supreme Court case uh, Fred Vincent died holding up. I do not know that. Brown v. Board of Education. Died of a heart attack in around 1953. Uh, and by holding up, I don't mean like, you know, he was literally holding up. I mean, he didn't want it heard. That's what I mean. Right. Yeah. He, he sounds like he just made all the bad decisions in his political life. So. It, was, it was the 30s. It was the 30s. I mean, I don't know. Uh, how people were back then, but I'm assuming it was more racist than today. Thank God we don't live back then and, and, and all that. I mean, we couldn't have had this conversation for starters, but I really want to thank you for taking some time out of your busy day to come on the channel and, and help the people understand uh, the legal hemp and marijuana worlds better. I've loved chatting with you. Happy to come on anytime. I appreciate you having me. All right. Thanks, man.